Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Acts chapter 2. This morning we'll be uh, winding up uh, this look at Acts in 2020. uh, And we'll be back in the Gospel of Luke chapter 12 next week. Let's begin by looking at Acts chapter 2. We're going to read beginning in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In Acts chapter 2, there are distinct principles that I believe every church should adopt as foundational principles for the church and the purpose of the church and for the existence of the church. Throughout the New Testament, the study of the church is called ecclesiology, where we learn and discover how God designed and architected the church to run and function, and the meaning by which it should be placed within the culture and society, and allowing it to do the job that He created it to do. At the end of 2019, I've stated many times that many believe that the church today needs to reinvent itself to continue its relevance amongst the culture. And as we've been looking at this together, I don't believe that the church needs to reinvent itself. I believe the church needs to rediscover the principles in which God has placed uh, for the church to fulfill. And as a, as a um, endeavor to rediscover those things, we're looking at Acts chapter 2, And in Acts are general principles that our church was based upon 23 years ago. And I believe these principles are as relevant today as they were when we initially began. Though the context has changed somewhat, where, uh, of course, in 2020 we have new ideas, new concerns, uh, new questions that we are addressing in in our secular society, the principles themselves still remain Uh, the principles in which the church should be based upon. And so as we begun, we, we saw that the Spirit needed to do the work within the church. It needed to be a Spirit-led church, number one. And we looked at what that means and what that looks like in and through the uh, work of the Spirit and the church itself there in the New Testament. Secondly, evangelism must take place. And this evangelism was evangelism that was answering the questions that the society was bringing forward at that time. Just as you and I today now need to answer the questions that our society is bringing forward today. It's a great launching point for evangelism. And answering those questions then leading, of course, to Jesus himself, which then introduces the gospel. And as a result, allowing the individual to respond to that gospel presentation and allowing the Spirit to do its work within the heart and the mind of that individual. And as they discovered, 
3,000 souls came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there were just 120 of them. Now there are 3,120 of them. So the question then becomes, what do you do next with all these newly found saved individuals? Well, verse 42 clearly says that these individuals devoted themselves, made of high priority, four things. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. These four pillars, uh, these four things became something that they devoted themselves, made of high priority, didn't allow distractions to get in their way of, of continuing in. It started with the apostles' teaching. And as a result, we then answered, I believe, one of the questions that many churches choose to answer at the beginning of their uh, startups, and that is, what is our main objective? What is the main purpose for our existence? And many believe that the church is simply here for evangelism. And so they'll create an incredible arena to allow evangelism to take place. And there's nothing wrong with evangelism. However, though, the primary example of evangelism that we have in the New Testament are individuals going out into their culture, into their communities, into their homes, and taking the gospel to those people. The church, on the other hand, though any verse of the Bible can be used for evangelistic purposes and an invitation should be given when appropriate to do so, uh, not believing that everyone who sits in a church is saved, of course. I think that's a misgiving. But that being said, I think it's incredibly important that you see that teaching was the first and foremost element of the church, which I believe then leads to the conclusion that the church is there for the believer in Jesus Christ. And therefore, I think that this completely agrees with what Paul said in Ephesians 4.11, where he said that God gave some to be apostles and prophets and teachers and pastors, etc., for the purpose of the equipping of the church to fulfill the work of the ministry. So primarily, here at Calvary, we would consider ourselves a teaching church for the purpose of equipping you, preparing you, giving the tool, you the tools you need to fulfill the ministry God has called you to, whatever that may be within the body of Christ. And I am a strong proponent of the fact that I believe everyone has a purpose within the body of Christ. You know, no one is expendable in the body of Christ. You know, uh, no one is one of those people that just, I'm here to sit on the bench, I'm just here to watch. I don't really want to engage. I don't really want to get actively involved in anything. I don't see that as a New Testament principle. I don't see anywhere in the Bible where God doesn't call someone and then prepares them to fulfill what he has called them to. And as a result then, teaching here at Calvary holds a primary position. But that teaching must be accompanied with fellowship. That fellowship is more than just us gathering together with the unified cause of Christ. As we looked at it in in more in depth in our session in fellowship, we saw that the fellowship that they are speaking of broke down 
these incredibly uh, uh, exclusive demographic hindrances in that culture, allowing rich people to interact with poor people, allowing uh, Gentiles to interact with the Jews, you know, racial, economic, social barriers were all eliminated in the element of this fellowship. Allowing, therefore, the teaching of the Word of God to take its full circle. For example, we made the illustration, say John the Apostle happens to be teaching there in the temple that day. Wouldn't that be something? John's teaching today. Oh, I like John, but I think Peter's funnier. No. Um, And John says, you know, he who sees his brother in need and does not meet that need, um, how does he then show love for his brother. Well, now they can be listening to the teaching of John and in proximity to people who need that help, they then can respond and I believe they do just that. And that's what we're going to look at today. But before you can fulfill these things, you must be in proximity with these people to see the needs. And that was just one of many examples that we gave. The breaking of bread that after the fellowship, not only were they there to be in proximity with one another with the the central purpose of being that of Christ, but then breaking of bread. Now originally, many just saw this as taking communion together. And I believe that was part of it. The only trouble that I had with that is the fact that the same phrase is used here in verse 46. And it talks about them meeting in their homes one right after another. And day by day they met in the homes and they broke bread together. Now, breaking bread together isn't just simply having a meal in that culture. It was one of the most intimate acts two people could enter into besides a physical intimacy that is only found in marriage. This was very important to that culture. In fact, this is why Jesus was forbade by the religious leaders to eat with certain people thinking that he would be defiled by them. But they saw no reason to keep from eating with one another any longer now that they were all Christians. And in it, they developed intimate, personal relationships with one another. And I think that this was truly part of the bedrock of the early church. It wasn't that they just saw their brother in need. They knew who their brother was and they had an intimate familiarity with them. And you know what I mean by that. It wasn't just knowing somebody by face or by name. They knew that person. And as a result, you have a deeper love for that person. And then they spent time in prayer, which we looked at last week. Now, it would be easy to stop there because these are the four principles that verse 42 gives us and we've expounded upon each one. But Luke continues this thought of obviously after 42 with verses 43 to 47. And now he begins to show us how the teaching of the word, their fellowship with one another, their breaking of bread together, and their praying together manifested itself amongst all the people. There was fruit to this. There was uh, a radical transformation amongst the people who participated in this. And if you notice with me, there is this phrase that I find fascinating, especially in the current culture in which we live today. In verse 47, notice with me, 
praising God and having favor with all the people. Meaning that the people of the society who were not Christians looked upon this newly formed church, this group of new believers, and saw it as a positive addition to their society. Saw this as something really good. And I have reasons to believe why they felt that way, and I'll share them with you in a moment. But this continued in chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. This continued into chapter 5, 5, 12 through 16. This unity, this togetherness, this community, based on the apostles' teaching and upon fellowship and upon breaking of bread and prayer. But to end it there, we would miss what I believe Luke was now trying to show and to demonstrate, that these 3,000 people were changed. They weren't the same anymore. And living out their Christian faith was initially received welcomely by the people, warmly by the people. The people, they had favor with all the people, I should say. As they gathered together, verse 43, let us pick it up there. It says, awe came upon every soul. There was a reverence, there was a fear for the Lord. There was a conviction. There was an acknowledgement of His presence there in the temple. They knew that God was with them. And this is very clear when you get later on in Acts, when the Holy Spirit appeared to be so present with the early church that the lying effects of Ananias and Sapphira were immediately called out by Peter. The hypocrisy that they brought forward was not going to be tolerated within a church society that the Spirit was so present within. Remember that when the Jewish people came to the temple to worship, when the temple was built in the Old Testament, God confirmed His presence upon the temple by the arrival of what was called the Shekinah glory. And the Jewish people, when praying there, believed that they were in the presence of God, even though there was one locality in the temple called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept and where the high priest could only go at certain times of the year they still believed that God was there with them. They still had a conscious understanding that God was there and with them. And now that Christ has come, and one of the incredible acts at His crucifixion was the tearing of the temple uh, shroud between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. From top to bottom, the curtain was torn by God, showing that access was now available to all through the person of Jesus Christ. Do you walk in your Christian life with the sense that God is with you, that He is present with you always? That there's nowhere that you may go to escape His presence? This was the dilemma of David. Where shall I go, Lord? That and I shall not be with you. It doesn't matter if I go too low or too high. It doesn't matter where I go. You're always there with me. But these individuals worshipped and practiced their new faith in the reality that God was with them. 
Now, some scholars have said that the awe came upon them because many wonders and signs were done through the hands of the apostles. Unfortunately, grammatically, that doesn't support that conclusion. Notice here that the awe came first. They were awestruck by God even before the signs and the wonders began to uh, be done by the hands of the apostles. Some believe that signs and wonders are the only manner in which an awe can be uh, arisen within the heart of an individual. I don't believe that to be true. There are times that I have to sit and literally close the Bible because there's a portion of it that has just drawn me so close to him that I just need to spend some time in prayer. But as the disciples now, and I should say the apostles, continued the ministry that Jesus began, we know that many wonders were done. Meaning miracles were done in the wake of this awe. This awe also indicated that there was a strong conviction of belief concerning God and who he was amongst them. And so it seemed to be the perfect groundwork for ministry, I should say miracles, to continue. And many wonders, these are miracles that were done, supernatural miracles. And signs, signs were miracles that had a significant purpose to them, meaning it pointed to the authenticity of the gospel, it it pointed to the authority of the apostles, it validated that what they were saying was true, these signs that accompanied them were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. So not only was there a great work of God and a move of His Spirit amongst this newly found church, but the reaction to it was that of deep belief and conviction. Miracles were taking place. Signs were continuously pointing towards the authenticity of what was happening. And as a result, they went further in their maturity and in their development. Instead of looking out for themselves, they began to look out for their brothers and sisters in Christ. Because one of the things that fellowship did was break down those divisions and allow individuals to love each other as Christ has loved them, but also to see these people completely differently. You have to get back into the mindset of the person at that time to understand what we're saying. The Jewish people were very convinced that anyone who was materially blessed had to have favor with God. If someone was wealthy, if someone was good-looking, if someone was a prominence in either the Pharisees or the Sadducees, etc., if someone held a respectable position in politics, all of these things would have indicated to the populace that that person was in favor with God. That's the way they felt. That's the way they interpreted his material or her material blessing, his more in that culture. However, though, this is a misunderstanding of what God originally said in the Mosaic Covenant. When he said, if you will obey me, I will bless you, Deuteronomy 28. If you disobey me, I'm going to curse you, Deuteronomy 29. 29 is much longer than 28. 
And what was a national promise had then been applied to the individual. And so people were misunderstanding that every person who was rich, they must have favor with God. Uh, Every person that was in a high position of power or prominence and prestige, they must have favor with God. Well, Eric, how do you know that? Because of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And when Jesus took him through the Ten Commandments, when Jesus talked with him, it finally came down to the rich young man being asked to sell all that he has and give it to the poor, which he could not do. He refused to do it. And in light of what the disciples asked next, gives us indication of what I'm saying to be true. Well, if he can't be saved, then who can be? Because their mindset was that he was already in favor with God because of all the material possessions that he had. So if he can't be saved, then who can? And Jesus then said, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Fellowship broke down these barriers. Where rich would interact with poor, uh, male with female, Gentile and Jew. And no longer were they considered poor or rich, undesirable, you know, one who would defile, unclean. But now individuals were looked at by each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. They were family. They were family. So their deep belief in the awe that it brought about, walking in the fear of the Lord, seeing that the apostles were constantly confirming who they were and the authenticity of the gospel and so forth through the wonders and signs in which they did, led them to a life of complete and utter generosity. They couldn't keep and see their brothers in need if they had so much extra. But let's take a moment to take a, take a step back because I don't want to leave this subject without addressing this fact. There is great debate and division in the body of Christ today over the continuation of the gifts of the Spirit in the church today. Individuals who believe the gifts continued today are called continuationists. I am a continuationist. I fully believe that the gifts are still practiced in the church today for the purpose of the edification of the body. There are those who believe that the sign gifts, those that are uh, given in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, ceased at the time of the completion of the Bible. And there are two verses that they find in 1 Corinthians 13 that they use to indicate that when these things come, these things shall pass away. I believe that it is a misinterpretation. They are not referring to the completion of the Bible, but when we are all in heaven. That's what I believe those verses mean, in the context in which Paul has given them. However, though, today, like everything else, we have a tendency to either swing the pendulum to a hyper-charismatic craziness or a complete opposite manner in which We don't allow the Spirit through the doors of the church. And that middle ground is so hard to find, theologically. And so many people want nothing to do with the gifts of the Spirit because they've had such horrific experiences of the spiritual gifts being used in an improper manner. And can they be? Yes, they can. But at the same time, 
you have individuals who have come out of the, the dry aspects uh, and the, where the spirit isn't even allowed through the door. And so then they run to the hyper-charismatic. And, for example, doctrines that are found in the hyper-charismatic often, but not all the time, such as the health, wealth, and prosperity movement, are then embraced once again and so forth. And so we see this pendulum constantly swinging from one side to another. But I believe that the gifts of the Spirit are given as the Spirit wills, number one, and are done decently in order, number two, and they're done, number three, for the edification of the body of Christ, not for the glorification of the individual manifesting the gift. So let us be clear that I believe that God can use these gifts today in a supernatural way for the edification of the church. Now, how all of that works and how the gifts are displayed and who knows what gifts that they have and so forth, that's what we're going to be talking about on Wednesday nights. We're going to be getting into that as we're working through Corinthians. Because Corinth had a bunch of problems, folks, and Paul needed to sort through them. There's this misunderstanding that those who display spiritual gifts are more mature than those who do not. But the book of Corinthians tells us just the opposite. There was a bunch of spiritual gifts being manifested in the church, but he calls them immature, carnal Christians. And so you have this great despair one side to the other. So we're going to try to make sense of that as we go through 1 Corinthians on Wednesday nights. Another shameful plug for Wednesday night Bible studies. But God was present. Fear came about them. Miracles and signs were being done through the hands of the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Because Bernie Sanders said so. No, stop me. Wow. We are not displaying socialism or communism in these verses. In fact, these verses were used by some to to support socialism or communism. In the Greek, verse uh, verse forty five is in a it's not an imperative tense, meaning they weren't ordered to do so. But what was happening is as as they saw their brothers and sisters in need, individuals who had more than they could use would sell off those items and give that money to those who had nothing. It wasn't a demand of a distribution of wealth, as socialism is. But it was an implication in the heart of the individuals for them to have an opportunity to show their love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. It's like one of you coming to church on a Sunday morning because you're happy and it's a bright, beautiful day and someone has just blessed you with a Corvette. And because you love your pastor so much, you give him the keys. I mean, that's an act of love. Right there, man. These people would do it because they couldn't justify in their hearts how I've been so blessed. This person has nothing. So they went out and sold it on their own initiative. The apostles didn't demand this of them. 
This is why Ananias and Sapphira were checked in the manner in which they were, because they lied. And Peter asked them, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? When it was yours, didn't, wasn't the money yours to do with as you will? So why come here and lie and say you gave it all when you actually gave uh, only a portion and kept a portion for yourself? You could have kept the whole thing. You could have come and said that it was just a portion of what you sold the property for. But since you lied about it to make yourself look better in front of everybody, God now sits here and judges. And Ananias and then his wife Sapphira were both struck down dead at that moment. That's, you know, boy, you know, I've heard so many messages trying to manipulate people to give, but I still haven't heard that one pulled out yet. You know, you better give. You know what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? They gave incorrectly and zap, they were gone. Wow. I'd encourage you to read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 to learn about the generosity that the Bible instructs us to live within. And I believe it'll shine great light upon the heart of why they were doing what they were doing here in verse 45. Because they were giving to any who had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. When they got saved at Pentecost, it was customary for Jewish families to allow pilgrims to stay with them to celebrate one of the feasts there in Israel, whatever feast it may be, either the four spring feasts or the three um, fall feasts. So if a pilgrim were to come into Jerusalem, it would be common courtesy to draw one in and say, you can stay with us, we have plenty of room for the feast, and there, it would be a great sh- uh, sign of hospitality and love and so forth. But there's an element that Jewish historians tell us, though, about this. Because, unfortunately, the homes would often, if it was a rich person's home, guess who they would offer the accommodations to? Those who were rich. A poorer person to a poorer person. And the demographics and the, and the social um, uh, hindrances and divides were still even manifested at those times. Here's what's happening here at this point. One Jewish scholar wrote it the best. He said that all of these things came down. Poor was staying with rich. Gentiles, who were Pelosites, then Christians, were staying with Jewish people. Everything was turned upside down. That, it's an interesting word that Paul uses in his epistle about the world being turned upside down for God. Everything that the Jewish culture was accustomed to was being turned upside down in their midst. You know why? Because they loved one another. And their love for one another was more significant to them than the social divides that were created simply because the society said so. Because they were brothers and sisters in Christ now, they didn't look at them as poor or master or free or rich. We're brothers and sisters. And so people would see this. It's like, oh my goodness. You know, and I'm sure it was a shock to that culture. You can imagine it, right? 
a complete shock to the culture. You know, here in the United States of America, uh, up until the 1920s, there was significant social divide between the wealthy and the poor. It was even worse in Europe, where certain families could never better themselves, but because they were born into a certain family lineage, they were always going to be either peasants or servants and so forth. And the royalty was going to be royalty, and the magistrates were going to be the magistrates, etc. And there was never an opportunity to better themselves. And then all of a sudden, this itinerant preacher named Jesus comes and he talks about this love for one another, that people now start loving one another within, and all of these divides are eliminated. And it says that when they gathered together and they broke bread, it means not only were they welcomed within the person's home, but they were forming relationships with one another. This was a taboo to that society. They, they, the society would have looked upon this so uh, in such a frownful way that they would have been, you know, uh, rebuked for doing such a thing. But they did it. And then there's this phrase. They together and breaking of bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They didn't take anything that they had for granted any longer. They were thankful for what they had and what they could share with those who did not have. They were thankful that they could come together and bless somebody else. They were thankful that they could be a testimony to the love of Jesus Christ and the elimination of these social divides. And and I don't even think that they did that purposely. I think the love in their heart was a supremacy and therefore these divides just kind of melted away. I don't think they came out and said, look at, you know, we're eating with poor people, you know. <laughs> I even had the music at the end. Uh, but I believe that what was happening here was that just the love that they had for one another caused them to do this. And as a result, as they were praising God, verse 47... And having favor with all the people. I can understand that now, right? This is something different. This is something new. This is something we've never seen before. How is it possible? He was crucified. How is it possible? You know, his disciples, they're they're uneducated, untrained men, but they've been with Jesus. How is this possible that these... Rich people, and even you can make cases for uh, you know Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Were they found amongst these? The religious leaders now are allowing these divides to fall so they could love one another as Christ loved them. They didn't socially stereotype people. They didn't categorize them. They just loved them. They saw them as Jesus saw them. How necessary is that for today? We need to get past some of the things that hinder our fellowship with one another and ask ourselves the question, what has Jesus died for? The person you're sitting next to isn't somebody who you you don't know. That's your brother and sister in Christ. If you see your brother and sister or your family in need and you have the ability to help, won't you help? Won't you love? I can see why they had favor with all the people. Now, this didn't last. They were persecuted after a while. 
because of the stirrings of the religious leaders who saw this to be a threat. I bet they did. And look at what happened. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I once had a pastor who I admire immensely tell me personally. I asked him, I said, after your 60 years of being a pastor, what is one conclusion that you came to? And he said, I am convinced that if the church would love each other as Jesus Christ loved them, the world would be pounding down the doors of the church. I agree with that. Here at Calvary Chapel, I encourage you to allow the work of the Spirit to take place in your life. To allow Him to show you that the people next to you are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we're all struggling with some things. We, we all need each other at one time or another. As we talked about the loneliness that many are experiencing today, if someone can't come to church and feel loved, where else are they going to find it? Now, I'm asking you to be proactive for someone else. I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying that you should come through the front door of the church and say, hug me, I need it. You can, and people will, but then we're going to charge you for that. No, I'm kidding. But look to see who you can bless. Who can you encourage? Often when I am down and I'm feeling low, it's often that my eyes are too much on myself and I need to get them off myself. So I look for someone else that I may be able to be a blessing to or just talk with about the Lord. To get away from my isolation that often causes all kinds of confusions and, and uh, doubts and condemnations and allow God to be God. Often when I struggle in my personal walk, it's not due to my prayer time or my study time or serving. It's due to because I'm not spending time in fellowship. That's why I still get together with my pastor. That's why we still get together once a week. So I can just talk with him and he can share with me and he can challenge me and, and, and keep me accountable and also encourage me when I'm low and vice versa when he's low. We need each other, folks. And we can't, we can't come to a church and think, all right, I just, you know what? It's got to be all about me today. And have this consumer mentality that drives us. I've actually had people leave our church and go to other churches because they felt that they were getting more for their tithing buck. Really? There's the front door. That consumer mentality has ruined the church. I don't want to be a consumer. I want to be a communer with God. And I want to come here and I want to have awesome relationships with each of you and i want us to love each other as christ loved the church and i want to allow that to be a testimony and a witness for the world around us to watch the lord add to the church daily those who are being saved we've seen several churches start in this area large churches lots of money great facilities and so forth and they would often build a campus and they would start a campus and they would talk about the church growth. Oh, we started and, and we had 400 the first time and 800 the second time and etc. But after a while, people started asking questions. What type of growth was this actually? 
And when they began to look at it, they discovered that it wasn't individuals getting saved out of the world. It was transplant growth. Individual Christians leaving one church to go to another church. I don't find that to be church growth. I had one pastor say that his goal was to uh, uh, gain as much market share in this area. Market share. That's all you are is market share. Market share in this area. No. When the, what I'm looking for to constitute church growth is the number of people who step out of the world into Christ. That's church growth. And if it takes a little bit longer, then it takes a little bit longer. Because, you know, unfortunately, when people transplant from one church to the other and they don't commit themselves, it only takes the, uh, you know, assembling of a new church. It only takes the start of a new church to get those people, oh, we're just going down there. Oh, look at their baptism. They got hot and cold running water. Woo! I'm going to get baptized again because it was freezing at that, this place. This place only had cold water. You know, you guys know what I'm saying. Folks, I am gravely concerned about where the church is in America today. I think we've lost our way. I think we've made it all about us. I think we have created a self-help organization which should have been a spirit-driven organism. I believe it's time now to let God be God. I believe that we need to just let him out of the box and just let him do what he does. I believe these people were living it. This was the real deal. And as a result, the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Is that something that we could look forward to here? Raise your hand. 